Because the world today is designed to tell you that you have worth, value, and beauty by the things that you do. But we serve a God who says you have worth, value, and beauty by who you are. Hey, welcome basketball tournament guests. How many of you are here for basketball tournament? See a few of you, yeah. It's good to have you visiting with us today. And uh, I know Sharon mentioned we're playing for the tall basketball players. We're also praying for everybody else too, okay? So just didn't, didn't wanna make you feel left out if you uh, feel shorter than your teammates, okay? So good to have you here this morning. And those of you that are regularly part of our community, we just wanna remind you tomorrow, 9 a.m. over at the Community Impact Center. We're going to be ripping up carpet, tearing stuff out. Nine to one, lunch is on us. We'll have some safety equipment as well. Bring a hammer, a crowbar, uh, and let's contribute our talent and our time towards this project. So thank you so much uh, for, for doing so. It's in the late 1960s, early 1970s, that a group of researchers from Stanford University went about doing one of their tests. And they brought a group of young school-aged children into a room and individually they invite them to sit down at a table and in front of them, they would put out a treat. And the instruction to the young student, you can have this treat now or if you wait 10 minutes, you can have two. It's known as the marshmallow test been replicated over and over again since. And I'll put a picture up on the screen of a young man who seems to be going through all of the different phases of grief in his one moment with the marshmallow. And ultimately, he couldn't take it anymore. But you know the, the old adage, right? Good things happen to those who wait. But we don't always wait. Walter Michelle, one of the researchers that was the driving force behind the marshmallow study, said this in his 2014 book, our ability to wait for the things we want creates self-control, discipline, and resilience. But we don't like to wait. We live in a society that is calibrated to not waiting. I like how Heather Thompson Day puts it in her book, It's Not Your Turn. We can't wait. None of us we don't watch television week to week. We binge entire seasons in 48 hours. We don't call people on the phone. We text them, we're almost there, and then honk the horn in the driveway. No one wants to take time to pour cereal, hand me a protein bar and a yogurt shake, and let me be efficient. We simply can't wait. Patience is a coffin, she writes. But what if patience is also necessary? Don't look at me, I'm looking at you, okay? This is exactly where we find ourselves in this story. We're traveling through the book of Acts. We started it last week at the first half. We're in the second half of the first chapter of Acts this week. So if you've got your Bibles, pull that out, turn it on, scroll over to Acts chapter one. We're gonna start in verse 12, Acts chapter one, verse 12. And it reads this way. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of about a half a mile. And when they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. 
Notice the list of disciples there. In Luke's gospel, he will pair Peter and Andrew together as brothers. He will put John and James together as brothers. But now in Acts of the Apostles, the defining factor of their brotherhood is no longer flesh and blood, but Jesus himself. So the order is a little bit different. And then he continues on in verse 14. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and several other women and the brothers of Jesus. Oh, to be a fly on the wall as they met in that upper room. Imagine the conversations that they had, the disciples, the women, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Remember, Jesus' brothers, while he was in his public ministry in the three and a half years on this earth, didn't really like what their brother was doing. But now through some crucial conversations, they have joined the work as well. And imagine as they're reflecting over the events of the past three and a half years with the resurrection freshly in their minds, the ascension freshly in their minds, they're probably shifting to the questions of what if? What if we had actually listened to Jesus? Oh, I wish I was paying more attention on the Sermon on the Mount. Man, I wish I hadn't done that. The shouldas, the wouldas, and the couldas. But this group, once fighting for position, wondering who was going to be the greatest, is now united continuously in one thing, and their focus is prayer. Prayer is what has brought this group together. And in the waiting, the disciples' new instinct was to pray. That wasn't what their instinct was even a couple of weeks before. But now as they have been promised the Holy Spirit by Jesus, and he instructs them, wait in Jerusalem until I give you my spirit, they are waiting. And the only thing they have left to do is to pray. And this morning, I want to explore with you the two different ways this prayer is described, the particular characteristics that this praying has. Oswald Chambers puts it this way, the meaning of prayer is that we get a hold of God. Jesus had just ascended to heaven, yes, but the disciples were still trying to get a hold of him. And here's how this prayer is described constantly together in prayer. The disciples' prayer was persevering. It was continuous. In English, we don't have a verbal tense to talk about a continuous action. We have to use the adverb continually. And that's what we find right here in this passage, that this wasn't a let's pray before our meal and then move on with our day. No, they constantly came together in prayer. It was the way that they lived their lives. And prayer really begins with the belief that God will answer. You see, the disciples weren't praying to a God who hadn't promised them anything. No, God, Jesus himself had promised them the Holy Spirit and a whole bunch of other things. They were praying to a God who answers prayer. And I think so much of our own journey with prayer is dependent on how we see God. Is God in our minds a half-interested God that if he gets enough requests from us, he might maybe just oblige to what we're requesting? Remember, Jesus tells the parable of the woman and the unjust judge, right? She gets a ruling that's not in her favor. 
but she doesn't give up. She keeps going back to the judge and says, that's wrong, that's wrong, it should be this. And Jesus says that the judge, though he is unjust, will flip the script, not because of anything inside of him, but because of how persistent the woman was. Give me what I'm asking for. And then Jesus says, so much more your father in heaven, not comparing the father to the judge because the father is just. But if the unjust judge will because of persuasion give you what you want, how much more will the father in heaven who is anxious to pour out blessing upon blessing upon you, how much more will he respond when we pray? Because we pray to an unfathomably loving father who is in the business of collecting prayers. We read about it in the book of Revelation. By the way, Psalms tells us he collects your tears as well. And he's not just a a dealer in fine wares to put your prayers and tears on a shelf and be like, look what I have collected. No, he collects them in order that he might respond. John Stott, really been loving his commentary in the, the book of Acts. He says this, we learn therefore that God's promises do not render prayer superfluous. There's your dollar word for the day, okay, superfluous. On the contrary, It is only his promises which give us the warrant to pray and the confidence that he will hear and answer. You want to see God answer prayers in your life? Begin to pray his promises. He says he will answer. He promises that he will give blessing upon blessing only if we ask. And the question I've been wrestling with this week is this. What would our church like if we persevered in prayer? That prayer wasn't just a time during the service where we come forward and it's it's a beautiful, beautiful moment that we do every week. But what if that propelled us to a continuation that week after week, we as a body, as a family are persevering in prayer, persevering through whatever the world has thrown at us and that we are constantly in dialogue with our heavenly father. I wonder what it would look like if we pushed through the waiting and the wonder with prayer. The disciples' prayer was persevering. It was also united. Not only were they praying constantly, they were praying together. And here's the thing about prayer. Prayer is the space where God's provision meets our need. What we face in Christianity in the West is a very individualized experience with God. The books that are written, the songs that we sing, it's often about me and God and what God has done for me. And I think that that's an important view to hold because you can and should and will have a personal saving relationship with Jesus. But the only way that that personal relationship is formed and formed well is in a body of believers with the people sitting next to you and behind you and the ones in front of you as well. We do faith together. Your experience and my experience, as we begin to share with one another, we edify each other's faith. And so leads me to believe that we need to be praying together as well, united as one. And the disciples recognized that it was not an individual need for the Holy Spirit. It wasn't how much Holy Spirit can I get versus you, and then we'll go out and see how many people we can baptize. No, we need the Holy Spirit. So we must ask for the Holy Spirit to come. This isn't a my versus your problem. This is our problem. So 
what would our church look like if we were united in prayer? That we were always, always at all times praying together, focused on mission. I don't know what it is. God could have something for us that unites all of us. We're praying for something to happen. I hope and pray you're praying for a community impact center that we're renovating this year. Every time I drive by it, little prayer, God, would you bless that? Invite you to join me because the power of heaven will literally be unleashed as we ask for God's Holy Spirit to be poured out. He promises that it will. Will we recognize it? As we join together in prayer, we begin to recognize how God is working. Now, waiting is something we all struggle with. Our world is not built for us to wait. There are millions of videos on YouTube about how to be productive with your time while you're waiting for something else. Life hacking, right? Multitasking. Because waiting in our world is perceived as wasted time. If you're not doing something while you're awake, well, come on, you need to be doing something. Because the world today is designed to tell you that you have worth, value, and beauty by the things that you do. But we serve a God who says you have worth, value, and beauty by who you are. And really, waiting is preparation time. It's in the waiting that we are able to get our stuff together. Waiting is preparation ground for blessing. How many times in our lives can we count where we've run off ahead of God, done things our own way, and realized if we had just stayed in the pocket for just a little bit, that we would have been in the exact place that God needed us to be for his blessing to be given. See, God hasn't abandoned you in your waiting. Whatever you're waiting in or for right now, he is with you. He's working on you in the waiting. Perhaps this is the season of your life that God is going to do something incredible. We don't go to a tomato plant in the middle of winter and be like, why haven't you produced fruit? Maybe you have a greenhouse in your backyard and you got tomatoes, okay? But we go, like, we're not frustrated with that tomato plant. Why are we frustrated with ourselves when we're in a season where our fruit has not been born yet? Because the tomato plant needs both winter and summer in order to be able to produce fruits. You and I need that as well. You see, in the book of Acts, the church will either be the greatest mo movement this world has ever seen, announcing the kingdom of heaven, or just another irrelevant religion that will come and go. The difference, the Holy Spirit. The instruction, wait, wait. Wait on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will be given. You see, you don't get Pentecost without waiting and prayer. You want the Holy Spirit to be poured out in your life? Wait. <laughs> you want to have a Pentecost experience like the disciples did? Wait. Too often we run ahead instead of waiting, allowing our hands, our heads, and our hearts to be prepared to receive the blessing. Keith Brooks in his summarized Bible says this, waiting on God for the anointing of the spirit is the great condition of spiritual blessing and fullness of power. It's counterintuitive. You sit in this world and wait for things to come to you and people be like, can't just sit around and wait. In God's kingdom, yes, you better wait. You better. And it's precisely in this waiting prayer that the disciples 
perhaps recognize a next step that they need to take. We continue the story, Acts chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. He said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled concerning Judas, who guided those who arrested Jesus. This was predicted long ago by whom? The Holy Spirit, speaking through King David. Judas was one of us and shared in the ministry with us. And Luke, the narrator, breaks in and says, by the way, Judas had bought a field with the money he received with his treachery. Falling headfirst there, his body split open, spilling out all of his intestines. Good afternoon, welcome to church. The news of his death spread to all the people of Jerusalem and they gave the place the Aramaic name Akeldama, which means field of blood. And Peter continues, this is written in the book of Psalms where it says, let his home become desolate with no one living in it. It also says, let someone else take his position. So now, we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken with us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. There's an empty seat at the table. And the disciples recognize that for a complete witness in this first part of the book of Acts is there to go to Jerusalem first. God's story with humanity has always been about restoring Israel and the 12 tribes found therein. Perhaps the disciples thinking to themselves and in prayer come to the realization that their witness will be incomplete if the table or if the seat at the table has not been filled. So they pray and they engage scripture. They realize scripture told us about this, perhaps gives us direction. And then they set out, if, if someone's going to join this group, like what's, what's the thing that unites us all together? So they formed a search committee. It met every other week to go over what do we need in this position? A consultant was hired. Look at their resumes. They came to the conclusion, two things. Someone who was with us from the beginning, since John's baptism till Jesus was taken to heaven, and someone who was witness of Jesus' resurrection. That's the qualification. When you love, the next job you apply for, just two things. That's all we're looking for, right? It's two things. And the disciples in this moment engage in what I believe is a, is a system of biblical decision-making. We'll put that up on the screen for you. That when it comes to decisions in our lives and the decisions that we need to, to, to make, both the small and the big, that if we'll engage scripture, if we'll look at what God's word has to say, and then we'll think about what, what's common sense. Every big decision that I've made has often had something in my gut that says, this is, this is the thing. You often, the tough decisions you have to make, you often already know the decision that you need to make. And it makes sense. And the third is that we pray. Through the combination of those three, we somehow come to a conclusion about God's will for our lives and we're able to make a decision. And so the disciples, having gone through this process, put forward two nominations. They nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they all prayed, oh Lord, you know every heart, Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry, for he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, 
And Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other 11. And that's the end of Acts chapter one. All of this kind of built up to a flip of a coin. I don't know about you, that hasn't always sat well in in Acts chapter one, because it seems like the disciples go through a thorough decision-making process. The search committee had come together. They say, these are the two that we're bringing before the church board. The church board meets and says, fantastic. These are excellent candidates. Uh, Anybody got a coin? Can we just? (sighs) But here's the thing. As we look at this example, I think it's descriptive of what the disciples went through, not prescriptive for perhaps how we should make every decision in our lives. The flip of a coin or the casting of lots was an accepted practice at the time. And I was having some lobby conversations today in between, uh, in between services, and there was kind of another idea that's, that some put me on. It was, it was a couple of you came to me and said, what about this? That the difference between Matthias and Joseph was basically nothing. They're both qualified, excellent men. Everybody's like, we can work with them. And instead of having a space that, oh, he got the job because like he knew Peter and like they were best buds and, and that kind of being a seed of doubt throughout, they said, let's take our hands totally out of this. Flip of a coin. God, you choose. Now, did God have his hand on the dice to the coin? I, I don't know that I want to go there. But here's the thing. The role you play is not more or less important than the one someone else plays. And I believe both Matthias and Joseph were satisfied with either decision. Imagine if you were Joseph, right? You you didn't get selected. How are you feeling? We don't hear any, any discontent from Joseph. We don't hear anything out of line where he's like, man, I wish I... He accepts the role that God has given him. And Matthias accepts it as well. You see, we are all called to play great roles without pride and small roles without shame. But by the way, there really is no great role or small role. See, we are all servants. We've all been given a specific task when we go about God's business. Now I want to let you know that the Keen Church is what it is today because of the collective impact that we have all had. Often the leaders get the credit. Our pastoral team gets the credit. And by the way, I think we have a fantastic pastoral team, okay? We get the spotlight often. It's like, it's because of the, no, 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 no. You have decided week in and week out to show up bringing time, talents, and treasures. In your big and small ways, you are making an impact in this community. I try to push off as much credit as I can. It's like, no, I serve fantastic people. And I believe that. The role each and every one of us play has been specifically designed for us, for your gifts, your talent, your time, your treasure. Our call is to show up when God asks us to and to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. See, through all of this, as the disciples are there in that upper room praying, they're making decisions about who's joining the table. They knew that there was an empty seat at the table for their witness to be fulfilled. They needed someone there, but they also recognized someone else. That Jesus had departed. But though Jesus departed, the ascended Jesus still 
leads his church. And they needed to wait for Jesus to fill the spot with the Holy Spirit. And I believe today that we are in that upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit to be poured out. And that the call, like those early disciples, is to pray with perseverance, united, asking God, you promised. You've shown us the outpouring before. Would you do it again today? Because our world needs Jesus. And the only way that they're gonna know about him is if we wait for the Holy Spirit. Because I believe today that the ascended Jesus, he still leads his church. <laughs>